You're listening to Tracing the Roots of the Climate Crisis. Chapter 2. Capitalism. How do we, as a society, want to make the big decisions that end up shaping the kind of world in which we live? How do we want to make decisions about whether mountains are mined, on whose land, and whose water gets fouled? Decisions about who comes home from work filthy, and who gets filthy rich. While it's hard to imagine questions that are more important than these, these questions aren't often discussed. That's probably because, for the most part, they aren't up for debate, and we've accepted the answers as a kind of common sense. I'm Ben Cushing, sociology faculty at Portland Community College in Portland, Oregon. Welcome to Chapter 2 of our series, Tracing the Roots of the Climate Crisis. This week, Capitalism. Capitalism is an extremely important part of the structure of this society. Every society has a certain way of being set up, and these setups vary enormously from one society to the next. Some societies are governed by monarchs, some are governed by elected officials, some are organized around agriculture on communal land while others concentrate power in urban centers with privately held industries. Sociologists refer to this kind of setup of a society as the social structure. So why does that matter? Well, the way a society is set up will actually determine a huge number of things, including what kinds of lives will be lived by the members of that society. For example, nobody can be a peasant or a nobleman, or a wage worker or a boss, unless they live in a society organized around those categories. I don't live in a feudal society, so I don't know any peasants or noblemen in my community. I live in a capitalist society, so my community is made up of, among other groups, workers and owners. So if I want to try to understand my life and the lives of the people around me, I need to get a sense of how our lives are shaped by the capitalist system that we're embedded in. Capitalism is the dominant economic system of the world today. If you ask an economist, they might tell you that capitalism is a way of organizing the production and the distribution of resources based on competitive and at least ostensibly free exchange. So maybe I sell my labor as a retail employee so that I can rent an apartment and buy food. Or maybe I start a business. This, in brief, is the economic system that you and I live in. And while capitalism shapes the lives we live, we're often pretty unaware of it. We're like fish swimming in a sea of capitalism. We're completely immersed in the sea, but we may not have a very clear understanding of the water or of the currents that push us around. Many people who look upon capitalism fondly will point out that capitalism and the profit motive that comes with it has driven remarkable innovation. They'll also suggest that capitalism encourages individual liberty, since it tends to leave major decisions to private individuals and businesses rather than the government. There's certainly a good deal of truth to these claims. Yet, for over a century, various sociologists and many others have expressed deep concern about the effects of capitalism on society. 
What happens to a society when more and more of the relationships between people are reduced to cold, calculated business transactions? What happens when we redefine the value of nearly everything so that it can be reduced to a number of dollars and cents? From its beginnings, capitalism has relied upon forced seizure, or expropriation, of wealth and labor. Between the 16th and 18th centuries, European elites seized, or enclosed, the European commons, the shared land that was the foundation of peasant life and communal economic security. In doing so, they simultaneously privatized land ownership and forced peasants into a new exploitative wage-labor system sometimes hiring people to work the land that they had once held in common with their neighbors. Those same elites also seized land in the Americas and elsewhere in their colonial conquests. And they seized people, particularly in Africa, and forced them to work that land. This kind of naked expropriation is central to how capitalism has always worked. Today, capitalism looks very different. But while much has changed, much has also stayed the same. The power dynamics forged in the colonial era continue to shape where wealth and power are concentrated, who works for whom, and who reaps the benefits. We began with the question, how do we, as a society, want to make the big decisions that end up shaping the kind of world in which we live? Of course, there's no simple answer to a question that big. But if instead we asked, how do we currently make those decisions, a major part of the answer would have to be this. We make those decisions based on profit. In a capitalist society, major decisions are made for the sake of the profit interests of the ruling class. In fact, under U.S. law, corporations are required to prioritize profit for shareholders over any other competing interests. Competing interests such as the health of the land, or the well-being of workers or communities. This argument that profit motivates a good deal of the decision-making that shapes our world is actually less controversial than it might appear. Many apologists for capitalism would actually agree. The economist Milton Friedman, for example, argued that the profit motive encourages innovation, which is good for everyone, and enables decision-making among private citizens without government interference, making us all more free. But as it happens, the freedom of powerful corporations to act according to their profit interests can sometimes conflict with the freedom and interests of others. Let me give you one example. In 2015, PBS's Frontline and Inside Climate News revealed that Exxon, the oil giant, actually conducted some of the first high-quality scientific research into the relationship between CO2 emissions and global warming. As early as the late 1970s, Exxon's own scientists understood most of what we need to know about the climate crisis. That burning fossil fuels will raise global temperatures, leading to more powerful storms, the melting of the polar ice caps, sea level rise, drought and flash flooding, increasingly destructive wildfires, species extinction, the spread of infectious disease, crop failure, famine, and mass refugee crises. Knowing that this research could lead to increased public regulation and decreased profits, 
Exxon buried the research and instead invested in a decades-long PR campaign to cast doubt on climate science. Frontline and Inside Climate News won multiple awards for their reporting, which was a finalist for the Pulitzer Prize. Exxon is still doing what Exxon does. The profit motive is a very powerful thing. Exxon had a choice that very few people in human history have ever had to face. They could choose with a pretty clear understanding of the implications of their choice between the short-term profit interests of their corporation and the long-term survival of their civilization and innumerable species around the world. They chose profit. Did Exxon make the right business decision? I think this question is absolutely crucial. I want to suggest that they actually did. And that's really the crux of the issue. The corporation is an institution that's designed to make profit for its shareholders, not to act upon the public good. And as I stated before, corporate leaders are bound by law to prioritize profit over any other competing interest. I want to suggest that we'd be wrong to focus our energy on the moral failings of Exxon's leadership. Rather than wringing our hands at the bosses, I think we can ask some much deeper and much more troubling questions about the system itself. What are the consequences of an institution designed to prioritize profit over everything else? What kind of a world will such an institution create? What kinds of human behavior is it likely to encourage? Is this kind of institution compatible with a thriving and just community? Is it even compatible with a survivable future? Since the 1980s, the dominant version of capitalism around the world has called for the deregulation of corporations and the transfer of public services to corporate hands. This version of capitalism, which is often called neoliberalism, has been remarkably lucrative for the ruling class, and largely devastating for working people in the U.S. and around the world, as well as the living systems of the planet. Two of its effects are worth noting here. First, the emphasis on deregulation, privatization, and massive cuts to social spending, sometimes called austerity, became so powerful and bipartisan in the United States that the kinds of regulations and public initiatives that may be necessary to address the climate crisis, policies that may have made perfect sense in the context of the New Deal era, became politically unimaginable. At a time when global regulation of corporations and large public projects may be necessary to avert a climate catastrophe, political elites accepted deregulation and privatization as the political orthodoxy. As Naomi Klein says in her book, This Changes Everything, it's really bad timing. Today, for the first time in a generation, cracks have begun to emerge within this political consensus. Whether it breaks and something approximating a Green New Deal becomes possible remains to be seen. Secondly, the culture of this particular version of capitalism undermines social solidarity and the democratic process. 
With its emphasis on individual self-interest above all else, and its contempt for any project based on cooperation for the common good, the neoliberal worldview undermines democracy itself. It undermines the very notion that we can make decisions together to shape our society in a way that we choose. As Wendy Brown argues in her new book, In the Ruins of Neoliberalism, this worldview ultimately leads to the rise of authoritarian movements around the world, from the U.S. to Brazil to Turkey and beyond. All of this raises difficult questions, for which we may not have sufficient answers. Is the climate crisis and the ecological crisis more broadly the predictable outcome of a certain economic order? And if so, how do we go about dismantling such a dangerous system? And how do we go about building an economy that attends to the needs of human and non-human communities? This has been Chapter 2 of Tracing the Roots of the Climate Crisis. I'm Ben Cushing. If you found this discussion helpful, check out the other chapters in this series, and please consider sharing it with a friend. In this chapter, we've explored the economic system. In our next chapter, we'll examine our belief system. Mm-hmm.